the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And good morning. I'm Gary Randall. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's Wednesday, April the 28th, 2021, in the year of our Lord. Today on April 28, 1945, Italian dictator Benito Mussolini and his mistress, Clara Patassi, they were executed by Italian partisans. They were attempting to flee the country. The chaos they had created, they were fleeing from. Isn't that often the way it goes, especially with politicians? Today in 1788, Maryland became the seventh state to ratify the Constitution of the United States. Today in 1789, there was mutiny on the HMS Bounty. You've heard the phrase, mutiny on the bounty. Well, this is it. The rebelling crew members of the British ship, led by Fletcher Christian, they set Captain William Bly and 18 others adrift in a launch out in the South Pacific. Bly and most of the men, I think three of them if I'm not mistaken, but he and most of the men reached Timor, the island, 47 days later. Today in 1980, President Jimmy Carter accepted the resignation of Secretary of State Cyrus Vance. Cyrus Vance had publicly opposed President Jimmy Carter, who... Um, was trying to, or he did, send a rescue mission uh, aimed at freeing American hostages in Iran. Cyrus Vance had said no, that the odds were against them succeeding. Jimmy Carter got upset at him and went ahead and and tried it anyway. I mean, it was a a valiant cause. Anytime you're trying to free hostages who are American citizens, particularly uh, American um, military people, I mean, that would be, that's a great idea, <laughs> and it's it's noble and virtuous. But Vance just didn't think it was the right time. Well, as it turned out, Vance was right. Jimmy Carter was wrong. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong with that whole episode. And um, Iran basically mocked America and our president publicly. So all of that ended up with Cyrus Vance quitting his job. Edmund Muskie was given the job. Today in 1988, a flight attendant was killed. More than 60 persons were injured when part of the roof of an Aloha Airlines, a Boeing 737, it tore off during a flight from Hilo to Honolulu. I remember that very well because, I mean, who would forget it? I saw the picture, probably in the newspaper somewhere on TV or something. I saw the picture and the whole part of that top of that plane, man, had just peeled off. It was like a big convertible airplane. Not good. Today in 1993, the first Take Our Daughters to Work Day was promoted by the New York-based Ms. Foundation. was held in an attempt to boost the self-esteem of girls by having them visit a parent's place of work. Later on, they expanded that to include boys as well. Five years ago today, President Barack Obama arrived in the Philippines. It was the last of several stops that he had made on a week-long Asia tour. 
It included Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, and finally, today, five years ago, the Philippines. In every case, every single case, every country that he visited on this tour, he apologized for America. He did. You can check it out. Every stinking time he put his feet on the ground on a different, in another country, in his speech, whatever he said, he included an apology for America. We're not perfect. America's made a lot of mistakes, but, you know, hey, you guys, every time. That bothers me. It still bothers me. Because he's reaped the benefits of this nation, certainly financially and in many other ways. America is a good country. No, it's not perfect, but we don't need to tell the world that. They know that. They're not perfect either. And if you want to go on a perfection scale, we're probably more perfect than they are in many respects, even now. And we have a lot of problems. And they seem to get highlighted in the press, the world press. Barack Obama did not help matters with what he was putting out there everywhere he went. He even bowed as he apologized in the Middle East. But we won't get into that today. Thanks for joining me. Always a pleasure to spend a couple of minutes with you every morning, whatever time you listen. We originate live at 9 a.m. on ACN radio stations. And then some of you hear us just a little bit delayed, an hour or so. But um, we do this every day so we can be current about what's happening. And speaking of that, President Biden is giving his first uh, big speech tonight um, to Congress. But all of Congress won't be there, not in protest. Some of them may be protesting him, just not attending. But it's a it's a uh, distancing thing. They're trying to stay with Fauci's protocol. And uh, so when you see that they're making a big deal out of it this morning, the Democrats in particular, the White House in particular, that when you see all those empty seats and the press will go on and on and on about this today, it's not because of President Biden. It's just because of the pandemic. And it is. They, they're social, you know, there's a pecking order of who gets to go and who doesn't and so on. I would suspect there are people who are, if, they're, if they don't get to go, they're probably happy about it. I don't know. But anyway, the, the chamber will not be full tonight for the first time ever, probably, when a president gives a speech. But there's a reason for it, and it has nothing to do with President Joe Biden. But National Review was talking a little bit about this this morning in an article they published. I want to share just a piece of what they were saying. They said, what is the Biden presidency? They said, "Who? we're trying to figure out what, what is he? I mean, every, you know, Trump and Obama and everybody they could kind of figure out, the people that, you know, that, that write about such things day in and day out about politics. But they, they were asking, National Review, they were asking this morning, what is the Biden presidency? What's, how do you define it? And they said, you can't. You just have to insert your preferred noun, whatever, that's what he is. That's what it is. And then they said this, and I, this is from them with a couple of my words added. But it says, uh, uh, the Biden presidency is spending $1.9 trillion on the American Rescue Plan, commonly described as the Pandemic Relief Bill. So you can move on to the $2.3 trillion American Jobs Plan, commonly described as the Infrastructure Bill. I would call that the Trojan Horse Bill, but they call it the infrastructure bill so that you can move on to 
a $1 trillion American Families Plan, which hasn't gotten a nickname yet, but will probably end up being called the Education Bill because it pledges to provide at minimum four years of free education. Well, that's true, but I would call it the Human Infrastructure Plan. In fact, Biden is starting to use that term now, and he's calling it the Human Infrastructure Plan because it does give four years of free education. It also gives free health care, free babysitting, and all kinds of other free stuff. Then you move from that to the new, the Green New Deal for cities, which will provide. I'm not making this stuff up. Neither are they. I mean, this is happening as we speak. I don't know if he's going to talk about it tonight. I'm sure he will. Uh, he, I'm sure he'll also take credit for the vaccine that's out there now and how he's getting America vaccinated and blah, blah, blah. And nothing will be said about the fact that Trump is the one that supercharged that and made it happen. But that would be, I guess, expected. But anyway, he it is his presidency is defined by the Green New Deal for public housing. That's $180 billion to retrofit, rehabilitate, and decarbonize the entire nation's public housing stock. But that's separate from the Thrive Act, which he would spend, excuse me, invest, 50, as they say, $15 trillion over 15 years to create family-sustaining union jobs across the economy. And that is separate from, I guess you would call it the Green New Deal Classic, which originally called for eliminating 88% of our current energy sources, banning cars, cutting military spending by at least half, 50%. I'm not kidding. That's what he's done in 100 days. It's underway as we speak. The fact checkers are looking at this and they emphasize that Biden's infrastructure plan is not the Green New Deal. AOC's New Green Deal and Joe Biden's New Green Deal are different, they say. How have they verified this? Again, I'm not kidding. PolitiFact has guaranteed you that Biden's deal is different than Ocasio-Cortez's deal because they asked Greenpeace. And Greenpeace said they emphasized that the two proposals are different. Well, if Greenpeace says they're different, then they're different because, I mean, these people are running around hugging turtles all over the world. They would know. And so it's different. That's a bit of what you're going to hear tonight. I didn't mean to be sarcastic if that creeped out. Lord, forgive me for that. Yesterday I was talking about Seattle Pacific University when we got to the end of our time. It goes by so quickly, at least for me. Probably seems like an hour and a half to some of you, but to me it seems like about 15 minutes. But we were talking about Seattle Pacific University and the the turmoil that's going on there, and we have close connections. I talked about that, have had in the past. I don't have any close connections now. But we have a, our oldest daughter graduated from there. I was on staff there at one time so anyway um we were talking about that and i got out of time and i i told you i had a couple of things to say i was pretty animated yesterday i was watching the clock but not as closely as i should have been but what i was about to say yesterday when we and again this program originates live it isn't produced so to speak 
what I was about to say is that the United Methodist Church, which is not connected to Seattle Pacific University and its connection to the Free Methodist Church, but the the United Methodist Church is going through some of the same throws themselves as a denomination. They're the third largest Christian denomination in the United States. And some of this same, these same conversations, this same kind of the, the, the homosexual activists are trying to take over the church just as they're trying to take over the, the, the Seattle Pacific University. The flashpoint is the same. It's homosexual behavior. There is no end to what homosexual activists won't go to to not only be able to practice their sexual behavior, but to get Christians to affirm it. That is, it almost seems like that's the ultimate goal. And they were, are relentless with this. Affirmation. I understand. It's sin. I understand some of the emotions that probably go with that. I mean, I don't know. But I suppose there's a guilt factor. And they just demand, not seek, but demand affirmation. And one of the things you look at this and you say, how did we get to this point? I mean, here's a school that was founded by God-fearing, hard-working, people-loving, free Methodists. And how did we get from that to this? And then you look at the Methodist Church itself. Wesley, John Wesley and Charles writing hymns, preaching crusades. The United Methodist Church. How did they get from all of that to all of this? Charles Finney was not a Methodist, but he was a Presbyterian. And he was a pastor and an evangelist. And I think I might have mentioned yesterday, but he was he is often credited for the, the preacher who sort of set the model for guys like Dwight Moody and even Billy Graham to make a public uh, call or a public invitation for people to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Dwight L. Moody followed that model in his preaching and in his crusades and so on. Well, Charles Finney, he said, and I'm quoting him, he said, if there is decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible. If the public press lacks moral discrimination... The pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses interest in religion, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules the halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Christian education is under attack, I would add, the pulpit must stand and correct it. He also said, Finney also said, Let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay it to heart and be thoroughly awake, woke, (laughs) to our responsibility to the morals of this nation. What I was saying yesterday, and I that will lead into what I want to talk about today for a few minutes, is the fact that we have lost that somehow the vision that we as a church have any responsibility in the culture. I've been an ordained minister my entire adult life. And we've done several different things, including mostly pastoring and being a youth pastor and a music pastor and so on. And we spent some years starting churches all over the world, particularly in third world countries, 149 of them. So we've had a lot of experiences, but it throughout my lifetime, I've never seen a time when the church seems more hesitant to go out there and preach the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. If we do not preach the gospel, and there is no power of God unto salvation infused into the culture, it's going to end up like this. Why is the church so hesitant to speak to the culture? I don't know. I wasn't. 
I can tell you, I can promise you, and there are people who were members of the church I pastored that listened to this program. Our church certainly didn't fail, and I spoke to the to the culture from the pulpit as often as needed. I mean, it wasn't every Sunday, but often I would incorporate that into my sermons and call it what it is. Those of you who know me or listen to this program, you can imagine that we actually did that. We did. The church grew exponentially from hundreds to a couple of thousand or so. It doesn't, like, drain the church. I mean, people don't leave a church over that. If it's done in the right spirit, in the spirit of being salt and light in the community, being a light in the darkness and so on. But that's what we're seeing today. Churches have become so hesitant to speak to the culture because they don't want problems in the church. I understand that pastors are real people. They have their own budget. They have their family to raise. They need an income. They don't want to get fired. They don't want to get pushed out of a church. I understand that. I live in the real world. But isn't there, an, isn't there a greater cause that is looming over all of this? I think there is. And I will tell you, as for me and my life, we're going to, every time we have an opportunity, and this microphone that I'm talking into today is one of those opportunities, we're going to try to tell it like it is. That's why we call this straight talk. Not so we can be controversial, but so we can maybe turn on the light in a dark corner somewhere. And somebody will say, man, I never thought of that. That's true. We're being sucked down this tube into the outer darkness, and the church is saying, well, I don't believe in being involved in politics. Well, Charles Finney is with the Lord today. But I hope he's still speaking to us through the words that I just shared. Those were his words, not mine. If our culture is screwed up, and it is for sure, the church bears responsibility. The pulpit bears responsibility. Because I will tell you, there is no other answer. We can't elect enough so-called good people to fix what's going on in our world today. Electing the right people certainly helps. But the ultimate answer, and that's why we advocate for that, but the ultimate answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for helping me to do what we do on this program. We would not be here without you. Your support is the sole support of this ministry. There is nothing else other than those of you who listen to it and believe in what we're doing. I want to thank you for that. And if you're new, if you're a new listener, we need you to join us. And we thank you in advance. Our address is Box 399, Bellevue, Washington, 98009. Box 399, Bellevue, Washington, 98009. Yesterday, the Atlantic Magazine, it's widely read, far left, kind of the elite magazine, really, of the far left. Everybody says, oh, yes, I, you know, I read, (laughs) you know. how." But anyway, it came out with an article. I read it, too. I'm not elite, but I pay attention to it because I disagree with most of what they write. But I want to know what they're saying, along with a lot of other sources. But anyway, the publication featured this. They had actually published the, the story the day before, then they updated it, changed a couple of things yesterday, which most all publications do that online anymore, newspapers, etc., but they were asking the question, in fact, the name of the, the article was One Vaccine to Rule Them All. 
They were asking the question, if a single vaccine could protect us against SARS, MERS, COVID-19, and every other coronavirus-related disease forever and ever, would it be worth it? But to achieve that level of protection, we must all come together as a global village, a world community of sorts, after all, we are the world, to accomplish it. That caught my attention, for sure. It caught my office's attention as well, and they brought it to my attention, actually, yesterday. It's a long article, but I want to just touch on a couple of things in it in the time we have today. Dr. Anthony Fauci, (laughs) Dr. Fauci, he told the doctor journalist who wrote the article, he's on staff, but he's a medical doctor, with with the uh, Atlantic. Fauci told him, it just makes sense to me to use all of our capabilities to go for a universal SARS COVID-2 vaccine. If we don't, he says, we're going to be constantly chasing things. Well, there's no question this COVID virus is real. I know there's some out there that deny it, but we get a lot of credit, we conservatives, for being at denial in that we deny that it exists. I don't hear anybody saying it doesn't exist. I hear people responding differently to how it's being handled, for sure. But there's no question there's a real virus, and we, Marjorie and I have friends who have died from this just recently. In fact, one in Yakima just recently. It's deadly and it needs to be addressed. But what things are we chasing that Fauci is talking about in this pandemic? The message The Atlantic had published in that article, they were saying and promoting the idea that one needle full of the right serum will rule them all. Those are their words, not mine. I thought that was an interesting choice of words, but it's not so much when you understand where the left is coming from. One serum will rule them all. Maybe one serum will solve the problem. No, no, no. It will rule them all. The article's long, as I said, but let me just touch on a couple of things in it. As the virus continues to spread, they said, wildly around the world, at this point, 5 million new infections are being identified every week. Further mutation is inevitable says James Hamblin, this doctor who writes for The Atlantic. Last month, the U.S. CDC released, this is me now, end of quote, released a three-tiered system to guide in prioritizing the emerging risks. They are a variant of interest, a variant of concern, and a variant of high consequence. Dr. Fauci is quoted throughout this article and that article that was released on the three levels of variants as advocating for a global response. He says, rather than playing a whack-a-mole, like an M-O-L-E, whack-a-mole, with this Dr. Fauci, with each new problematic variant, he said, it just makes sense to me that we use all of our capabilities to really go for a universal SARS vaccine, one that can protect no matter which way the virus goes. Dr. Pamela Bjorkman, a bioengineering professor at Caltech, Dr. Jason McClellan, Dr. Wang, a biochemist, Dr. Wayne Kopp, all these guys are all coming in on this Atlantic story. And they're all recognized authorities in the field of infectious diseases and so on. They're all calling for action with a great amount of urgency. Well, again, I get that. I mean, we have a virus. Uh, it's better to kill the virus sooner than later. I mean, it's, it's a good thing. But Fauci says this virus is going to hang around for another couple of years before we suppress it, if we're lucky. And if we don't, if we don't get one in place for this virus, a a serum, 
we'll need one for the next one. So we have to put everything on the line on this serum. Dr. Bjorkman says in the past, most of the world ignored the viruses and so on, put their head in the sand. Dr. Koff says the the governments of the G7 nations would have to come together with the private sector, the World Health Organization, and they would have to come together with no none other than Seattle's own Bill and Melinda Gates and their foundation to make this world system work. He says, we didn't learn after SARS and MERS and HIV and swine flu. And interestingly enough, they eliminate in their list Ebola. Did they eliminate it because Ebola is the name of a river in Africa where that disease started and it's not politically correct anymore? I don't know, but I noticed it. The motives, the motives, who can say? The heart is both wicked and deceitful, according to the Bible. We can know it, according to Scripture, Even we don't know our own hearts. We can only know it as God reveals to us our wrong motives and corrects us. And we ask for forgiveness. But when we begin to to listen and hear people speaking out, their words and actions are always revealing. And so are ours. By all accounts, this is a marvelous opportunity for globalists to move their agenda forward. I'm not saying that Fauci and all these guys are globalists. I think they are, but I'm not saying that. I don't know what's in their heart. But let's assume that all these doctors are sincerely motivated only to help people. We need not assume that in regards to the Atlantic magazine, who chose the title and the subtitle for Hamlin's article. Not he, but they. They did. They decided to take this globalist approach. Where are they coming from? I can tell you in a, in a, in a minute or two. In March 2020, just last year, The Atlantic published an article titled, The Coronavirus is Demonstrating the Value of Globalization. The subtitle read, We are experiencing a painful introduction to anti-globalism and its consequences. The painful introduction was a man named Donald Trump. That's their article, not mine, and it has a picture of him sitting with world leaders at some event. I don't know what it is. It looks like the UN, maybe, or something. But anyway, the the subtitle on this said, they're experiencing painful introduction to anti-globalism. The entire story, this was one year ago, is about Trump and how he's impeding the move toward globalization or globalism. The story used the coronavirus as an example of how restrictive a nationalistic-oriented president as opposed to a globalist president like Joe Biden, not only hurts America, but it hurts all the people of the world. In other words, if you have any sense of national sovereignty as a nation, you are hurting the world. You are bad. You are not virtuous. But the globalist movement is not military-driven. It's not an effort to conquer the mind. I mean, historically, we've had those people rise throughout history. Hitler's probably the most recent serious attempt to take over the world. Others would like to. But this is different than that. This is a move to conquer the mind and normalize submission to someone or something other than God under the guise of doing something good for the greater good. Probably the best example of an attempt to globalize was the story we all know, the Tower of Babel. In Genesis, it tells the story. Many have pondered the motives over the years. Books have been written about Nimrod and the others who were trying to build 
Why did he do this? What was his motive? Well, it's very clear. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, it tells us exactly what they were thinking. And they said, Come, let us build a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. They were rebelling against God because God had said, Go out and scatter and replenish the earth. And they said, No, we're going to cluster and we're going to be one community, one world community. That's exactly what was going on there. And that's exactly what's happening in our world today.